When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today we'll talk about Trump's new acting attorney general and whether his appointment is legal with Erwin Chemerinsky, dean of the law school at UC Berkeley. His new book is We the People, a progressive reading of the Constitution for the 21st century. We'll also get a report on that caravan from Central America that's headed across Mexico towards the American border. Laura Carlson has been with the caravan. But first, lessons from the midterms for Democrats and for Republicans, too, maybe, from Frank Rich. Frank is a writer at large for New York Magazine, where he writes about politics and culture, and he's an executive producer of Veep at HBO. Before New York Magazine, he was an award-winning op-ed columnist at the New York Times, and before that, the paper's drama critic. My favorite of his books is his memoir, Ghost Light. We reached him today at Paramount Studios, where he's finishing the final season of Veep, Frank Rich, welcome back. Thanks for having me, John. Nice to talk to you again. Well, the Democrats, of course, won back control of the House. It's not unusual for the opposition party to do that in the midterm, but this was pretty big. The majority is now going to be 37 or 38, maybe even 39. What are the most important things you think the Democrats can do with that majority in the House? Wait a minute, you're telling me that the president was wrong? This wasn't an almost complete victory for the Republicans? Um, <laughs> I'm shocked. My my feeling is there are lots of things that Democrats can do, starting with obviously having investigations and having investigations that are sane, forensic, very professional, and go at it. To me, the whole the impeachment language being part of this is sort of a red herring. He's not going to be impeached. It's just not going to happen. So why not go after crimes or they can be punished anyway, potentially, without having uh, an impeachment trial that's not going to take place uh, with this Senate? And then, of course, you know, if Nancy Pelosi remains as speaker, which I hope she will, quite honestly, because I think that she's a very, as many do, a very canny legislative and political operative, she'll try to put up bills that, you know, maybe Republicans will have to work on, maybe not. Maybe they'll they'll die and not get to the Senate. But she's she's very good at picking fights that can embarrass them in terms of, you know, legislation, for instance, infrastructure that's of practical value uh, to the country and would intrigue voters, perhaps in both parties, not Trump's crazy base, but the voters apart from that. The other thing is, if the Mueller investigation is derailed, which is something that could happen uh, with this White House, I mean, Mueller could be fired, you know, the whole Whitaker thing. We don't know where that's all going to end up, but they can just pull Mueller up in front of television cameras before Adam Schiff or whatever to have a conversation about what he found. Uh, And I think there'd be a rapt audience (laughs) watching everywhere except on Fox. I think there would be a rapt audience. This week, we're looking for lessons from last week's election, lessons for 
the Democrats in 2020, our three most exciting candidates were Beto in Texas, Andrew Gillum in Florida, and Stacey Abrams in Georgia. Of course, Beto lost. Andrew Gillum has a recount underway right now. And Stacey Abrams at this hour, we're recording on Tuesday at midday, is fighting to get a recount in Georgia. So Andrew Gillum could still win. Stacey Abrams might still win. But none of these were the wonderful victories we had hoped for. Where does that leave us this week with our our most promising candidates? Well, my feeling is these three candidates are all stars. They they probably have all lost. I don't want to be too pessimistic. Beto definitely lost, and I'm I'm not wildly hopeful that Abrams or Gillum are going to get in. And in Abrams' case, I think in particular it's a scandal because of her opponent being Secretary of State of Georgia and seemingly engaged in huge efforts to suppress voting, particularly among minority groups. So. Uh, it's an outrage. But I'd also add, there's not a clear picture either of what a national message would be, because while Beto ran for ran in Texas on a very, very progressive, uh, sort of ideal progressive platform, there were other factors there, including his particular star power. Abrams did so well in Georgia, even if she loses, but she's not, you know, she's a centrist. Gillum obviously ran a very progressive campaign, but Bill Nelson, who maybe has a better chance of pulling it out and a recount in the Florida Senate race is a centrist. So I think that kind of conversation is a little bit academic because there's no real litmus test that can apply to the whole country for this. And a lot's going to depend on who the person is and what message that person can convey when the time comes. Well, Nicholas Kristoff at the New York Times op-ed page found a, a different lesson. He, he said the Democrats who won, quote, hailed from the political center and ran on clean government themes and promises of incremental improvement to the healthcare system rather than transformational social change. So clean government and incremental improvements should be the basis of the Democrats' uh, campaigns from now on. What does that sound like to you? You know, it sounds like a version of the Hillary Clinton campaign. Yeah. I think think this constant chasing after an elusive uh, centrism is ridiculous. And I think, and I, and I, I don't think that candidates have to be the, the most progressive position on every single issue. People are human beings and they're entitled to have some variety in their programs. But this to me is from the same school of thought that since Trump was elected said everyone, every Democrat should read Hillbilly Elegy and go into uh, the Rust Belt and basically preach a kind of old-style Republican <laughs> republicanism, or Hubert Humphrey kind of, uh, Hillary Clinton kind of a Democratic uh, uh, platform. I, ju- I just don't think it makes any sense. I, it has, there's no passion in it. And the fact is, Trump's base is not going to be converted. Trump is right about at least one thing. He could take a gun out in Fifth Avenue and indeed shoot someone, and, and his base would not care but look at the Rust Belt states, Midwestern states. The Democrats did well, much better than they did in 2016. That shows how few votes Trump won by. You know, we're talking about tens of thousands of votes that can be flipped without doing something that is completely gray and meaningless. And look, you know, look at Sherrod Brown in Ohio. I mean, completely disproves the theory that you have to be 
bland and behave like a Kiwanis Club leader to be elected as a Democrat. We're talking here, of course, about Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin, which shocked us and horrified us by voting for Trump narrowly, as you say, in 2016, all of which elected Democratic governors and and senators. And uh, in another part of the country, the first Democrat was elected to the Senate in Arizona since before Mm -hmm. many of us were born. Kirsten Sinema and the Democrats uh, elected a a very progressive woman in Nevada. Democrats win in all the cities of the Sun Belt, Phoenix, Dallas, Houston, Atlanta, Miami. Seems like there's there's the basis here for doing something bigger. Absolutely. And and again, I stress, bigger doesn't have to be ridiculous. It doesn't have to be pandering to the, the left part of the base, the Democratic Party, even though I say this as someone who probably is part of that base. Whatever one thinks of them, you look at the people who are being talked about as possible presidential uh, nominees, whether it be Elizabeth Warren or Cory Booker or Kamala Harris or, I don't know, Christian Gillibrand, many, many others, including possibly Beto, I guess, they're pretty much don't fit what pundits are recommending. They're pretty passionate liberals, whatever, however you want to def- define it. Um, and, but none of them are, if I may say so, Hillary Clinton types running on a cautious, you know, you can't even tell which baseball team you're rooting for kind of program. Well, would it be ridiculous uh, to run on Medicare for all, a $15 minimum wage and free college tuition? No, I would say free college tuition, uh, I'm all for it. I think free college tuition with an asterisk saying, and here's how we'll, here's how we'll afford it and yes. laying that out. Great. But yes, and a $15 minimum wage, all of these positions are fine. I don't think they're enough. I think it's got to also, we've got to extend to foreign policy and to, to other things besides, if you will, uh, uh, kitchen table issues, including, you know, reestablishment of the rule of law in this country, which is being uh, really vandalized by the current administration. And how do we go about that? One other uh, factor that could help Democrats move towards victory in 2020. Florida voted to enfranchise more than a million Mm ex-felons. Do you think some of them might be Democrats? I dare say, I dare say, um, yes. I think that's a very vivid and fascinating example that that happened in Florida. But it's just one example of a number of constituencies that are waking up and responding to what's going on um, with this president and the Republican Party. So, and I think it's just going to get worse for the Republicans when there's a presidential race, which attracts more people uh, to the polls uh, than even this kind of record midterm turnout we just saw. Uh, Finally, I want to ask about Veep. It's the final season. You're shooting it now. What an amazing show it has been. It started out anticipating that we would have our first woman president and then you at Veep and all the rest of us were overtaken, you know, by history. Uh, And then when Trump got to be president, Julia Louis-Dreyfus got sick, a metaphor for all of us, I have to say. Now she's recovered. Now you are shooting the final season. What can you tell us about it? Well, I can say a couple of things. I can't say much. What I can say is one of the things that I'm proudest of in Veep, and and this was Armando Yanucci's original conception, which has been kept by our superb current showrunner, David Mandel, 
we never reference contemporary politicians. There's never been a line in the show about Trump, Obama, Clinton, anybody. We never mention a politician later than Reagan. So we've created this alternative universe. And so that presents an issue to us because we had actually outlined a season and started writing a season well after Trump had been inaugurated when Julia got her diagnosis and we had to pause for a year. Uh, now there's been a much more Trump presidency. And I think we've reconsidered some some things in the season, not to have a Trump character, not to mention Trump, not to I love SNL, but we're, that's not the business that Veep is in. So not to do literal versions of anything Trump's doing, but to, uh, in a show that I feel already posits a very, very uh, dysfunctional political culture and government and executive branch, to maybe ratchet it up a step. And I think we have something that's, um, I hope, is going to be very funny, somewhat dark, uh, and and. Uh, perhaps a bit unexpected, but not one that violates the aesthetics of the comedy that we've had for this is the seventh season. So I'm very excited about it, and we're we're shooting the penultimate episode, uh, even as as you and I speak. And, and I should say that you know Julia recovered. She went through, as she's talked about publicly, you know, really serious cancer treatment for for breast cancer, and uh, now she is back and ready for bear and, you know, diving into this uh, crazy comedy we hope we're giving her and the public when we air this spring. Frank Rich, thanks for talking with us today. Great to have you on the show. Great talking to you, John. Thanks so much. Now it's time to talk about politics in the Constitution and Trump's new acting attorney general that political hack named Matt Whitaker. For comment, we turn to Erwin Chemerinsky. He's dean of the law school at UC Berkeley, the author of many books, including a brand new one, We the People, a progressive reading of the Constitution for the 21st Century. It's published today, Tuesday. He publishes widely, including the op-ed pages of the New York Times and the LA Times. We reached him today in Berkeley. Erwin Chemerinsky, congratulations on the new book and welcome back. Thank you. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. Well, Trump fired Jeff Sessions the day after the midterms last week. For a year, he'd complained that Sessions should have stopped the investigation of Russian involvement in his election. So this is the moment we've been worrying about. You've been sharply critical of Jeff Sessions as attorney general. How are you feeling about him this week? Well, I think much of what Jeff Sessions did as attorney general is loathsome. He was the initiator and defender of the policy of separating parents and children at the border. He ordered all federal prosecutors to charge every crime to the maximum. He said no longer would the Justice Department investigate patterns and practice of civil rights abuses by the police. On the other hand, one thing he did was stand up for the rule of law. The rule of law is that no one, not even the president, is above the law. And Jeff Sessions properly recused himself from the Mueller investigation. As far as we know, never interfered with the Mueller investigation, and we have to very much give him due for that. So now we have Matt Whitaker, Trump's appointee as acting attorney general. That appointment is unconstitutional, according to Neil Kotyal and George Conway, two prominent attorneys who wrote in the New York Times op-ed page that 
Trump has failed to seek the advice and consent of the Senate for this appointment as required uh, by the Constitution. And since Matt Whitaker has not been confirmed by the Senate, anything he does as acting attorney general is invalid and subject to legal challenge. And the state of Maryland now is challenging the appointment in court. Maryland is asking a judge to rule on who is the real acting attorney general It's part of the lawsuit in which the state had sued Jeff Sessions in his official capacity. The lawsuit is about enforcement of Obamacare's protections of people with pre-existing conditions, so it's a very big deal right now. Because Jeff Sessions is no longer the attorney general, the judge must substitute his successor as the defendant in this litigation. Maryland has said it's not Matt Whitaker. What do you think? Well, I want to separate two questions. One is, should Matt Whitaker be attorney general from, is it constitutional for him to be the acting attorney general? Okay. Matt Whitaker is really from the right-wing fringe. Matt Whitaker has said publicly that he believes that Marbury versus Madison, that gives the courts the power to review the constitutional statutes and executive actions, was wrongly decided. He said that states should be able to nullify federal action. He said only Christians should be appointed as federal judges. And you wonder... How did somebody with these really crackpot views become the acting attorney general? Well, he had one thing going for him. He was critical of Mueller's investigation. He even talked about the new attorney general should starve the Mueller investigation of funds and basically end it in that way. Now, having strongly opposed Matthew Whitaker as the acting attorney general, you get to the constitutional question. And I think it's a much harder question than Conway and Cachel made it seem. There are many instances where presidents have made temporary appointments to acting positions without Senate consent. I'll give you an example. Bill Land Lee is a terrific civil rights lawyer. He'd been nominated to be the Assistant Attorney General of the Civil Rights Division. He wasn't confirmed by the Senate, but President Clinton made him an acting Assistant Attorney General. That's a position that requires Senate approval. There are other instances where there have been vacancies, and there's been appointment as acting of those who hadn't been confirmed by the Senate. The argument on the other side is generally when there's been a vacancy in the attorney general position, we just have a number two or three person who has been confirmed take over that role. Is that a constitutional requirement? That's uncertain, and that's really what's going to be litigated. Whether Maryland's going to be able to do it in this litigation is also uncertain to me. Does Maryland really have standing to be able to object to who's the Attorney General of the United States? Does it matter for the handling of this litigation? It'd be fascinating to see how it all gets resolved. And of course, the underlying question is what happens to Robert Mueller and his investigation now? Is there a way to protect Mueller and his investigation if Matt Whitaker either fires him or cuts his budget to zero? Mueller is appointed by the attorney general or when Sessions recused himself, the attorney general's designate, Rod Rosenstein. If the new acting attorney general wants to cut Mueller's budget or even fire Mueller, there's not much Mueller legally can do about it. Obviously, if we then get back to the argument, does Whitaker have the authority of the attorney general given how he was appointed? Well, there are some roots of protecting Mueller uh, that have been sketched out by people who claim to know what they're talking about. One is that even if he was fired or if his office was crippled, he could uh, deliver the 
work he's completed to this point, perhaps even sealed indictments, to the grand jury. The grand jury is beyond the reach of the Trump Justice Department, and the grand jury could issue indictments on his own. Or, or Mueller could pass along the results of his investigation directly to prosecutors in New York City or New York State on the grounds that they have jurisdiction over some crimes. In fact, he might already have, have done this because he's undoubtedly anticipated uh, what, what might happen here. What do you think of those routes? I think those are all viable routes. Now, I'm going to take the latter that you mentioned. He could give the information to a United States attorney. We know of other instances where he's given information to the United States attorneys. This led to indictments and guilty pleas. Of course, the United States attorneys serve at the pleasure of the attorney general. And what if he gives the information to the United States attorney, say, in the Southern District of New York, and the United States attorney says, I'm going to sit on it, or the United States attorney doesn't sit on it, the attorney general says, you're fired, and I'll put in somebody in that role who won't use the information. So just remember, United States attorneys serve at the pleasure of the attorney general. In terms of the grand jury, he may have already presented the information to the grand jury, uh, or he can do so. Grand juries can return indictments, but grand juries don't get to prosecute. So if the grand jury were to indict, the prosecutor, whoever it would be, replace Mueller could say, that's nice, but we're not going forward with the prosecution. And there's no way to force them to do that. So firing Mueller doesn't necessarily end the investigation, but it would certainly deal it a serious blow. And what about the prosecutions being taken over by the state of New York or the city of New York City, at least the ones that involve, you know, state crimes and city crimes, presumably involving taxes, for example? It's a complicated question. Assuming there has not been a prosecution initiated at the federal level, and it would be a state crime, the state of New York or any state can prosecute if the crime occurred there. So for crimes that occurred in New York, they can prosecute in New York court if no federal prosecution has been initiated. If a federal prosecution has been initiated, and if what's called jeopardy has attached, then New York law wouldn't allow the prosecution. New York law could be changed to allow the prosecution. But then comes down to something even more complicated, the Supreme Court has said that the federal government and state government are separate sovereigns, and a prosecution in one, whether it leads to acquittal or conviction, doesn't preclude a prosecution in the other. But there's a case that's going to be argued in the Supreme Court in a couple of weeks, Gamble versus the United States, as to whether the Supreme Court should overrule that and say that the federal prosecution precludes a state one or state prosecution precludes a federal one. So all of that is why I say that question becomes a complicated one. Well, let's talk about your new book. It's subtitled A Progressive Reading of the Constitution for the 21st Century. What led you to write it in the first place? I had planned to write a book after Hillary Clinton was elected president on what it will mean to have five justices appointed by Democratic presidents. We haven't had that since 1969. And I wanted to lay out what should be the progressive vision for this new court. The day after the election... My wonderful literary agent, Bonnie Nadell, wrote to me and said, your proposal is scrap paper now. <laughs> and I did nothing for about six weeks. And then I said, but the progressive vision of the Constitution is going to be just as important, even if we don't have a court that's going to follow it right now. That the conservatives were so successful in developing their conservative vision at a time when they didn't have a staunch conservative majority on the court. We progressives now need to be developing ours if nothing else, the basis for criticizing the Supreme Court and President Trump 
but also is laying a blueprint for a longer-term future. But of course, the Constitution is responsible for some of our biggest problems right now, particularly the fact that although Trump did not win a majority of the votes, he lost by almost three million, he did get to be president anyway because of the Electoral College created by the Constitution, something that's explicitly anti-democratic with a small d, intended to, to check the will of the people, the will of the majority. And, you know, Article 1 and Article 2 of the Constitution establish the Senate, which is part of the basis of the Electoral College itself, another uh, attempt to check the democratic will of the people. And of course, it wasn't until the 14th Amendment in 1868 that we get equal protection. It wasn't until the 15th Amendment in 1870 that we get the first mention of the right to vote in the Constitution. So the, the original Constitution seems like has a lot of anti-democratic elements in its bedrock. Where, where do you find the underlying values for a progressive reading of the Constitution? In the preamble to the Constitution, and it's interesting how much the preamble has been ignored. Yeah. I taught constitutional law for 39 years, and I never, until I started working on this book, focused on the preamble. None of the constitutional law casebooks or treatises do much with the preamble. The Supreme Court virtually never mentions it. Yet those of us who grew up in the United States probably had to memorize it around <laughs> eighth grade. Yes. And if you look carefully at the preamble, it really tells us the values that the Constitution is meant to achieve. It's about democratic governance. It's about creating an effective government. It's about establishing justice. It's about preserving liberty. And I would add one value that's not in the preamble to that constellation, and that's equality. And so what I do in the book is take each of these values and talk about what should be the progressive reading of the Constitution to achieve these values. But I'm, I'm still hung up here on the Electoral College. It's clearly undemocratic. It's not the work of we the people. What do you think about the Electoral College in this context? The Electoral College was created in large part so as to protect slavery and southern states that had slaves, because it was said at the Constitutional Convention that if everyone got to vote for the president, then southern states would be at a disadvantage because they didn't let their slaves vote. And so the Constitution said in calculating representation in the House of Representatives, Slaves would count as three-fifths of persons. The Electoral College is based on representation in the House and the Senate, so southern states would get benefit of their slaves with regard to representation in the Electoral College. The Electoral College is blatantly inconsistent with democracy. Twice in the last 16 years, five times in American history, it's chosen a president who lost the popular vote. I think the Electoral College is unconstitutional. Wow. Or at the very least, I think that the winner-take-all that's used in 48 states is unconstitutional. But how could something in the Constitution be unconstitutional? That's because of the amendments. There's a number of things that are in the Constitution that were made unconstitutional by the amendments. One of the things the amendments do is add equal protection to the Constitution. And I think the Electoral College violates the notion of equal protection. But at the very least, I think, and there's a lawsuit pending about this now, that winner-take-all is unconstitutional. And without winner-take-all, it would be much less likely to re-elect a president who lost the popular vote. I was fascinated by your argument that the 14th Amendment should be the basis of a guaranteed annual income. And in fact, it almost was not so long ago. I believe had the Warren Court, which ended in 1969, continued another decade, 
it would have found under the Constitution a right to minimum entitlements, right to education, right to food, to shelter, to medical care. And we tend to forget that none other than Richard Nixon in the early 1970s was about to propose a guaranteed annual income, minimum entitlements assured by the federal government. This I intentionally used to conclude the book. It's not how people think about the Constitution today. It's not going to happen anytime soon. But if we believe that the Constitution is about securing life and liberty as well as property, I think the government should have the duty to provide these minimum entitlements. It's interesting, when the court considered whether there's a right to education, it rejected it, but it was a five-to-four decision to reject that with the four Nixon appointees in the majority, joined by Potter Stewart. Erwin Chemerinsky's new book is We the People, a progressive reading of the Constitution for the 21st century. It's published today, Tuesday. Erwin, thank you for this book, and thanks for talking with us today. It's always my great pleasure, John. Now it's time to talk about the refugee caravan crossing Mexico. Trump may have stopped talking about it now that the election is over and he can't use those refugees to spread fear among Republican voters, but we're still interested in why the caravan is so big and what we need to do about it. For that, we turn to Laura Carlson. She's a contributor to The Nation and to Democracy Now! and director of the Americas program of the Center for International Policy. She's based in Mexico City. She's been with the caravan for The Nation. We reached her today in Mexico City. Laura Carlson, welcome to the program. Thanks very much. Thanks for the invitation. Well, the caravan of Central American migrants on Saturday set out on foot from Mexico City, where they'd spent a few days, and is walking toward Guadalajara and then up the Pacific coast to Tijuana. That's more than 1,500 miles. You talked to some of the refugees in that caravan. What did they tell you about why they are walking? The refugees are coming mostly from Honduras. And there, there's a, a combination of factors that have to do with the poverty, but mostly have to do with the violence and the political crisis there. The political crisis, the latest one, because we'll recall that in 2009, there was a military coup in Honduras that was never really restored to constitutional order. Uh, but the latest con- conflict there had to do with the elections just last November when the president, Juan Orlando Hernandez put himself up for re-election, something that's prohibited by the Constitution, and uh, then lost the election and was instated through fraud uh, by most all analysis that caused uh, widespread demonstrations throughout the country that have been repressed with scores of political assassinations. So we have a country that's basically a wreck between the poverty, the displacement caused by transnational investment and mega projects that are taking over lands where communities, especially indigenous communities, are located, and the political crisis that has targeted dissidents and created widespread chaos throughout the country. So I've talked to quite a few refugees, both out at the camp when they were here in Mexico City and uh, for interviews. Uh, and what they're talking about is really an imminent threat to their lives. Uh, 
um, there was one person who is transgender, and she described the kinds of threats that she received on a daily basis, as well as the overall chaos and violence that reigns in the country. And so when the caravan set off, she decided that this was a good opportunity to leave. There's also a number of individuals who've received direct death threats, both from Honduras and then we talked to several in, in El Salvador as well, because later a large group left from El Salvador. So typically what happens is that someone refuses to pay an extortion uh, by the gangs in order to carry out their business, or there's a lot of young people on the caravan that have decided that, or that decided not to join a gang and they were threatened that they either had to join or be killed, and so many of them took the opportunity to leave. These are the kinds of cases that were seen. The United Nations, a uh, number of years ago, did interviews on the southern border with Mexico and found that some half of the cases, just on the face of it, had legitimate claims for refugee status, and the number is probably far higher now. Uh, who organized this particular caravan. Of course, we're told it was George Soros who did it. This has been the big question because there was a lot of rumors going around about how this caravan came out. Of course, it's it's a common occurrence that caravans and individuals leave from Honduras to go to the United States. But in this case, what's not common is that it was such a large group. There were like 7,000 people. So we talked to a number of people in Honduras and tried to figure out, okay, so how do we explain this? Clearly, it had nothing to do with George Soros. Then there's also been a lot of speculation about whether the right didn't provoke this mass exodus in order to do exactly what happened later, which is create uh, this invasion scenario that would mobilize the Trump base for the midterm elections. But in the end, the conclusion that we arrived at was that the caravan became so large because of a pent-up demand of individuals who were looking to leave, who had to leave Honduras, and then, and then a little bit later, El Salvador in particular. Uh, and when they found out that there was a group forming that would uh, travel in large numbers, uh, and would be able to do so without having to pay what they call coyotes, which are the human traffickers, and that charge between eight and fifteen thousand dollars to make the trip. Uh, that this would be a good opportunity. So, what do we need to do about the caravan? It's very important that people in the United States understand that it's legal to cross a border and apply for asylum. So we're not talking about an invading army of illegal people. These are people who are following the rules in terms of what their rights are. The individual stories are heartrending. And then the other part that's really important is that there's been this just vicious language about who these people are. And I've come to know a number of them, and not just in this exodus that began in October, but in others as well, because you know, migration out of these regions it has been going on for a very long time. And uh, they're not criminals. You know, they're, they're not looking to steal jobs. They're not looking to cause trouble. And they say that over and over. 
um, they're they're really looking to just have a safe place where they can survive. It's very, very important that people in the United States understand this, to react with compassion. One other thing, American policy towards Honduras could also have a big effect on migration from that country. That's absolutely true, and the effect is a direct one. What happened in 2009, before the violence started at these levels in Honduras, was there's a military coup, and there was a huge process to negotiate the return of the elected president. Uh, And during that process, the U.S. government manipulated it so that they actually held elections under a coup regime. Instead of returning constitutional law and the elected president to office, they held elections under a coup regime, and since then there's been a series of governments that were very close to the coup regime that have been strongly supported by the U.S. government. In the recent elections that even the Organization of American States could not endorse, because it was so clear that there had been fraud involved in the fact that he went up for re-election in the first place, but also in the vote itself. The U.S. Embassy played a huge role in supporting Juan Orlando Hernandez uh, to keep office after that election instead of listening to the protesters who were demanding a fair election. Another factor that has to be taken into account is that the United States has militarized societies to supposedly fight organized crime, but giving military power and police power to these repressive governments. Laura Carlson, she wrote for The Nation about why the refugee caravan is so big and what we need to do about it. You can read her at thenation.com. Thank you, Laura. Thanks very much, John. Finally, the University of Nike, how corporate cash bought American higher education. That's the subject of this week's episode of Dave Zirin's Edge of Sports podcast, our sister podcast at The Nation. This week, Dave talks with Joshua Hunt, the author of a new book about the development of Nike as a multinational corporation, its relationship with the University of Oregon, and its connection to much of what we see today in college sports. That's this week on the Edge of Sports podcast, where sports and politics collide. New episodes every Tuesday at thenation.com. Start Making Sense, the Nation podcast, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, located in the heart of Hollywood, with technical assistance from Justin Allen. Our recording engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is the nation's engagement editor. Katrina Vanden Heuvel is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and now at Google Play. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.